As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. If you enjoy the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast, check out our new daily news program, the Bloomberg Daybreak Podcast. It gives you the day's top stories with context in just 15 minutes. Look for it in your podcast feed by 6 a.m. Eastern every morning. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for a sample of today's edition of Bloomberg Daybreak at the very end of this podcast. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. July 14th, that is when J.P. Morgan <coughs> kicks off the earnings season. Apple and the likes later in the month of July uh, yeah. 28th will come out with some of those earnings. Your emphasis on that is an important one. Chris Harvey wasn't a chem major, but he was at Bucknell, which is like the Bucknell bubble. All you do is study finance with there because the winters are so cold. He joins us now, equity strategy at Wells Fargo. Your note, Chris, is absolutely brilliant about thinking back to 1998, 99, into 2000, and 2001 in the tech, the analog of looking back. What's the number one message in your study of this tech bubble versus that tech bubble? So the the number one issue is tech is not going to roll over. The major theme is not going to roll over until you crack the economy. That's what happened back in 99. That's like what's going to happen now. And I don't think you crack the economy until the Fed gets more aggressive. And so we'll have some wiggles. I think we'll have a pullback in the market. We'll have a pullback in big tech. But that overall theme is, not, is still in place. And not until the economy breaks do we, have, do we really think about that, that trend breaking. Is tech in a set of individual companies that you study at Wells Fargo? Or is it this amorphous sector blob up there like a 1950s sci-fi movie? <laughs> uh, we, we do study tech. We do study individual companies. But what we do is we focus in on a lot on the Uber, what we call the Uber cap or the top 50 names. Um, you can look at one or two names, and that, that's great, but that doesn't give you a trend. And we look at the Uber caps because as you go across capitalization, small cap, mid cap, large cap, they all have characteristics. And the Uber caps are the ones that really have that AI exposure, that tech exposure. And, and again, going back to 1999, that's one of the things that we did see. We saw that Uber cap outperformance. We saw that tech outperformance. And before all that, we saw that the economy and the old economy stocks roll over. You said something I want to pick up on. You don't crack the economy until the Fed gets more aggressive. Right. Are you saying the Fed hasn't gotten aggressive? Lisa, the, the Fed has gotten aggressive. But I, I think we can all agree that the economy is a lot less interest rate sensitive than we thought. The way we're characterizing the economy is an economic malaise. 
we did think we were going to, we thought the probability of recession spiked with the banking crisis, but now we think that's come back down. And so we're really looking at an economic malaise more or less than, than a recession on the horizon, right? The consumer is still okay, still has cash on the balance sheet, eating through their savings, but still has savings. Corporations still have plenty of savings. Balance sheets are much better. And so really you need some sort of shock to get us into a recession or you need a lot more time. This is taking a lot longer than we expect, and I think it will take a lot longer than we expect. Do you think that the amount that people are willing to pay for goods mm-hmm. will come down, that there will start to be some consumer pushback at a time yeah. when we just heard FedEx, yes, you're seeing volumes down, but they're still increasing prices <laughs> more than expected, and that is a theme across a lot of different industries. Yeah. So uh, I, I may go off on a little bit of a tangent. If I do, just pull me back in because I, I talk about surveillance. <laughs> Don't worry, it'll happen. Carry on. So I, I talk about the consumer a lot. And if you think about the U.S. consumer, the U.S. consumer has been buying, and I'll exaggerate a little bit, since he or she was five years old, right? It's a very savvy consumer. We've been spending a lot of money. We know when there's utility. And what I'm seeing is the U.S. consumer has been pulling back. They've been pulling back on goods. They're not finding a lot of utility there. If you look at, at real retail sales, if you look at, at retail sales in general, it's not as strong as you would have expected. You are seeing, if you go to the Walmarts and the Targets, you are seeing a trade down. The U.S. consumer's behavior has changed. And I think the U.S. consumer is a lot more savvy than we give he or she credit for. Going forward then, do you think we have seen this rolling recession yeah. in certain areas that offset something that's deeper than an economic malaise? Regardless right. of what the Fed does, they are cracking certain segments of the economy right. and others continue to chug along because of different advancements yeah. and less interest rate sensitivity. Uh, you, you really hit on a great point. And th- this is something we talk about in the office a lot. You can't pay to this economy with one brush. And you are seeing kind of a... Um, it's a very heterogeneous uh, economy and, and market. You're seeing certain sectors that have already rolled over and are beginning to improve. You're seeing other sectors that are, are beginning to roll over for the first time in a while. And so one of the things that's causing this to be an economic malaise is there's not, um, it's not synchronous, right? The economy is very, very, if you look at a housing market, the housing market, the new issue market, or the new market is very strong, but the old one is three and 30. I'm not going to leave my house because I have a 30-year mortgage at 3%. Very different. If you look at some of the construction spending, manufacturing, warehousing, it's through the roof, but other parts of housing and and construction are are beginning to roll over. So again, I I think you hit on a very important point and something that that we really have been diving into, and it's it's hard to kind of disentangle. But this economy is not not really synced up, and and you cannot paint it with with one brush, which is why the economy has been a lot more durable than a lot of people have expected. It's been a huge theme of the program. This lack yeah. of aggregation right now is tangible. I want to point out one thing. You can do this off the Bloomberg, folks, a Bloomberg terminal in the description screen, DES. J.P. Morgan is owned by institutional 75%. Mm-hmm. Apple is owned 61%. I know you don't want to talk individual securities here, but, you know, woe is me, big tech to the moon. We're all going to die. Except can I make the statement big tech is under-owned by institutions? I, I would agree with that 100%. And what I... What I would say is we do a lot of positioning work. And in our positioning work, what we've seen for years is the buy side community is underweight tech, but it's mainly underweight Apple and Microsoft. We were talking about this in the office five years ago, um, kind of a flip title, but we, we entitled it Return of the Mac. And what we had seen back five years ago is a very big underweight, uh, an exceptional underweight in Apple. That's never closed. And what we're seeing is 
one of the things that, that's giving us pause, and I think one of the things that's pushing the market is this underweight in Uber caps and in Apple and Microsoft and a few of the others. So I would agree with you what, what you're saying is the right. institutions are much, much more right. underweight. Uh, Bramo, uh, John from Italy emails in and he says, get a new SPX quote from Chris Harvey here. 4,200, can you lift it up? <laughs> Come on, I gotta make some news. So, Tom, <clears throat> here, here's what I say. So are you in target? It's late, but hey, no one's watching, go. <laughs> so our 42, uh, our year-end price target is 4,200. At the end of last year, we also had uh, a soft landing target. That was 4,400, right? Uh, we cannot- The two targets. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And it's also the x-axis. Do you have a Hogwarts target? If we get a Hogwarts target, can you give me 4,500 this morning? No, no, I can't give you 4,500. But this is why we go back to it's about the economy. Because I can make certain adjustments. I can change my estimates. But really, do I have a lot of confidence in that? No. But what I have a lot of confidence in is it's really about the economy. The major trend's not going to break until the economy breaks. Chris Harvey, Wells Fargo. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Francis Donald is with Manual Life, global chief economist and strategist. She's very good at writing blistering bullet points that cut to the chase. We're going to cut to the chase, which is we all know the U.S. is way out front on inflation versus what we saw in the United Kingdom today and even uh, Europe, Japan being the oddity as well. And you look at the nonlinearity here. You pick the 0.3 percent. The answer is core inflation is coming down. There's a little bit of a vector in place. But you say the path to 2 percent is going to be brutal. Well, the path to 3 percent is probably going to be quite easy. We'll be there in the next couple of months, and then a lot of people will claim victory. Uh, Yeah, for sure. I don't see it. Well, a huge element of this is base effects that are coming through. That's just a big part of it. Looking back 12 months. But you do point out something really critical, which is that if we talk in year over year, inflation is healing. But for most Americans, and in fact, global citizens of the world, their price pressures are not coming down. They're still paying substantially more than they did several years ago and are still going to have that embedded view that prices are substantially higher. And that's why these central banks, the Fed, the Bank of Canada, the Reserve Bank of Australia, the BOE, cannot 
cannot imply that rate cuts are coming. If they do that, we will see a reinflation of inflation or reinflation well, of inflation expectations. But they've basically said that. And you're still seeing a group of people say inflation is going to be hotter for longer. They don't have what it takes to actually come through with these expectations. So at this point, if they don't raise rates further, will they lose the battle with inflation? Well, no, because a big segment of inflation is not coming from interest rate sensitive sectors. Yes, some portion of it is, but we are in a new paradigm in which inflation is being driven. I know we've said it for years now, more by global, more by supply side factors. So as we move forward, and this is why, you know, this year is interesting. The July meeting is interesting. But what keeps me up at night is 2024 and onwards, because we're heading into an environment where two to three percent inflation, in our view, will become the norm. And central banks are going to have to make a decision. Do they continue to launch us into recessions or lower growth in order to put us towards 2%? Or do they admit that the nature of inflation is changing and 2 to 3% is more what we're going to be looking at? This is so important. And there's a lot to unpack within this. If 2 to 3% becomes 3 to 4%, how do they make sure it stays within a certain range and keep their credibility? Are you saying that it would be a mistake? For this Federal Reserve to go to five and a half or even six percent in terms of a Fed funds rate in order to bring inflation down faster, because all they would do would be to torpedo the economic growth without necessarily changing that paradigm. What I'm saying is that it's a mistake to ask central banks to solve inflation all by themselves. That is the nature of inflation changes. We have to have some hard conversations about what we're asking global central bankers to do. Now, the Fed has a little bit of an out because it has a dual mandate. It can look towards the employment side of the picture, which, by the way, they're going to have to change the metrics they look at in order to do that. There are other central banks that have single mandates that are only targeting inflation. Those central banks are going to have to say, what is the cost of 2% now that the nature of inflation is changing? If you see the disinflationary trajectory, you're outlining a a soon-to-be serious disinflation. What does, as a labor component, non-farm payrolls do? I mean, we have people that come on that suggest we could see an abrupt decline in non-farm payrolls. Do you buy it? Here's the issue with the employment data. Now, in the past, we would look at non-farm payrolls as a good indicator. We would look at the unemployment rate, which, of course, is what the Federal Reserve So what do you look at if you're not looking at them? I am looking at weekly hours worked among other indicators. And the reason for that is we have companies that have been very clear they are still scarred by the labor shortages that have persisted over the past several years. They will attempt to cut costs, likely in ways that are not laying people off. But what we're likely to see is you stay employed, you get to check that box, but the amount of hours that you're asked to work decline. Now, weekly hours is already back to pre-COVID levels. And yet I hear all the time, but the labor market's on fire. Well, not if you look at the actual amount of labor being consumed in this environment. The unemployment rate, is still going to be probably rising very slowly. We don't actually have it going above 5%, even in a recession, but the amount of labor consumed is going to be lower. Right. This is why our metrics have to broaden. Lisa mentioned earlier something we've talked about in surveillance for quarters, I would say now, which is the solution is patience and expansion of the x-axis where they stay higher for longer. To me, that's just a, it's a more efficacious move than to worry about 25, 50 beeps up, down. Do you buy that? Absolutely. Well, the solution to most things is patience, Tom and Lisa. I agree with you on that one. So when we discuss our forecasts, yes, we have penciled in one more rate hike for July. But what we spend much more time thinking about is the response to the next recession. And at this point, what we're looking at in 2024 is, yes, the central banks do cut. The Federal Reserve does cut, but only towards what they view as neutral, that they don't actually go into easing territory. They stay restrictive. And of course, that brings a question that I 
I know you love to ask on this, what the heck is neutral? That we don't know for sure. When you talk about the resilience in the face of the rate hikes and the lack of interest rate sensitivity in certain areas, what do you make of the fact that markets have continued to rally, that we've erased all of the losses incurred since the beginning of the rate hikes, and that we've seen two-year yields rise by 100 basis points in the past month and a half? I think you used the word reckoning earlier, which is, I think, an important moment. We have historically, for my entire career, believed that as you face a recession, central banks respond. And indeed, you know, my job on the buy side working for an asset manager is to input our forecast to see what different asset classes are going to do. In a recession, we start saying, okay, there's going to be an opportunity for equities, for fixed income throughout this. But when we start modeling recessions without material rate cuts or with less rate cuts, then we actually see a very different asset class return. It is not a standard recession playbook. So what I think is happening now is a market that's coming to that realization that recession or bank failures does not equal rate cuts. This is a paradigm change from how we've looked at things. So why is there such a resilience, right? If that's not going to be rate cuts to the to the rescue, is that reckoning going to be lower or is it going to be that maybe this economy just isn't interest rate sensitive in the way many people expected? There is an element of that and there's certainly no shortage of soft landing. Now, the issue I have with that and why I think there's a disconnect right now between equities, which are being distorted by the AI story, there's no question about that, and fundamentals, is that every single leading indicator of a recession is flashing red deeply red, Lisa, like flashing red. So even if I say to my team, okay, I want you to have, cut in half those indicators, is it still a recession? Mm -hmm. The answer is yes. So if you want to make the point that it's a soft landing, you have to discredit the bulk of indicators that have traditionally told us a recession. And you can do that. And there are some strategists that have made very good points about excess savings and labor shortages, but I'm not quite there yet. So a recession ahead means there's a disconnect between prices and fundamentals. That's when we make money, Lisa. 30 seconds, quick. Is the stock market disassociated from your cautious economic view? Yes, but that's okay. We have tactical timeframes, medium timeframes. Macro is not everything all of the time. Canadian thing, as medium much, time frame. As much as I would like macro to be the driver, sometimes you have to trade off of momentum, technicals, <clears throat> and sentiment. If you're a tactical portfolio manager, that's the moment. And recession may still be a couple months away. So sometimes there's a disconnect. Depending on your time frame. that's also an opportunity. Francis, thank you so much. Francis thank Donald you. with us with the Manual Life of Montreal. Manual Life Investment Management, I should say, uh, as well. Amanda Mlinem, Head of Macro Credit Research at BlackRock, joining us now. Amanda, how much more restrictive do 5% rates get as time goes on? Oh, thank you, Lisa and Tom, for having me. Good morning. I, look, I think it's a challenging environment for a, a, a large subset of the corporate credit universe, specifically the subset that has a large exposure to floating rate debt. And you know, right now, we've already seen, as you well know, the all-in cost of debt for the leveraged loan universe <coughs> double, more than double, actually, since the first quarter of 2022. And the signaling that we've received from central banks, both the Fed and the ECB, is that there's probably more room to run there. And President Lagarde was was very clear on that in her press conference recently. So I, I think that there's more upward pressure. But but as you as you noted at the start, I, I think whether we get an extra 25 or 50 basis points from here is probably less relevant than the amount of time that we stay in this kind of higher cost of capital environment, because corporates are looking at these upcoming maturity walls, which yes, they are in mostly 
2025, but that will that will need to be addressed sooner rather than later. And for those corporates, we're not really expecting any sort of relief, certainly not in the form of rate cuts. Um, and I think actually, if you look at where the all-in yields are in a lot of the subsets of the corporate credit market, the risk-free rate has done a lot of that heavy lifting and, and spreads. Right. Are, are are fairly contained. And so there's probably some room for spreads even to right. move higher. There's a lot of mathematics there. You get that from Amanda, uh, line. Amanda let, me, let me cut to the chase. Finally, we have a risk-free rate. William Sharp is happy. We got a risk-free rate, and then you got spreads up, and Lisa's pointed out how narrow spreads are. What are the ramifications if the actual yield in, the, in an aggregate corporate space widens out? What actually happens to our listeners and viewers? I think the the first order implication is that you see an uptick in financial distress. And you, you're already seeing that in the default rates. For example, in the U.S. market, the leverage loan default rate is outpacing the high yield bond default rate by the largest magnitude since the data on the Moody series that we use began in, in 1996. And, and realistically, over the past two decades, there have been very few instances where the loan default rate is outpacing the high yield bond default rate. And I, I think really that speaks to, to the point that you're raising. It's that that real-time marking to market of the higher cost of capital mm -hmm. in the loan market as the policy rate has moved higher, borrowing costs for floating rate debt, if they're unhedged, have moved higher in tandem. And that's causing stress for a subset of smaller issuers that don't have the pricing power. They don't have the financial flexibility. Perhaps they don't have the refinancing options. And so they're at a disadvantage. Now, that's not a common subset throughout the vast right. majority of the market, but for the smaller <clears throat> issuers that will be stressed. Is commercial real estate either actual or securitized? Is commercial real estate an opportunity or just a massive wait for the washout? The way that we're viewing it is another reason for banks to be more selective in lending. So as you know, it's a more than $5.5 trillion market. Banks, both small and large, own roughly half of that. And I think it will take some time for the price discovery process to play through, you know, it's it's reasonable to think that uh, metrics that we used in past cycles, like LTVs, like cap rates, may not be as relevant in this cycle, given the the significant change in prices that we've seen, and also given the interest rate volatility. And so, I think it will take some time for investors to get clarity on the macro, which determines the cash flows of those assets, and then also to to figure out where the real bottom exists in price discovery. That's it's probably going to take longer to play out than, for example, the stresses that we might see in the in the corporate credit market among those smaller issuers. But but it's something that we're definitely watching because it's so interest rate sensitive. I think the, the real point, though, Tom, is that just like commercial real estate can't be painted with a broad brush, all CRE is not created equal. You know, office, we think, is is perhaps the most vulnerable. Similarly, in the corporate credit market, quality means much more than ratings. It's, it's really nuanced. It means pricing power, refinancing options, business model resilience. Um, and those are really things that I think will be increasingly important in the second half of the year because 
the fact of the matter is that we didn't make as much progress on taming in inflation as we liked. Um, there's probably upside risk to policy rates, a higher cost of capital environment. And so we need to tread carefully when we think about uh, what, what companies and sectors and asset classes are best positioned for that environment. And the upside risk to policy rates is what people are focused on when they listen to Fed Chair Jay Powell as he takes the seat on Capitol Hill in about two and a half hours. From your vantage point, you say it's more important how long rates remain high when does it start to bite the most? One of the maturity walls, the most painful, and you start to see the interest rate sensitivity really come to the fore. Yeah. So so we've seen some early signs of that in the default rate, but I would say at current levels, the default rate is still pretty well contained relative to the, to the history. There's probably some upside risk to that. I think when the when the 2025 maturity walls really become an issue is 12 months prior to those bond maturities, because for a host of reasons, we know that high yield corporates in particular don't like to let their maturities become current on their balance sheet because that has implications for the year end audit and, and, and going concern language. And so even though 2025 seems far off in the distance, it's, it's actually not that far off if you think that corporates will start to address that in 2024. One really interesting point, and I, I don't think that this favorable technical will persist, um, the, the, the magnitude of, of high yield supply and the purpose of high yield supply has been incredibly bondholder friendly so far <clears throat> here today. It's kind of the best of both worlds. We haven't had a lot of high yield supply and the supply that we've had has been used for bondholder friendly needs like re refinancing and debt repayment. As we get closer to those maturity walls, that volume of supply likely picks up. And so that favorable technical mm -hmm probably been an anchor for high yield spreads, frankly, year to date, will probably ease up a bit. And so that's something certainly to watch as we get closer to those maturity walls. But yes, Lisa, to your point, I mean, the 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 length of time and the willingness, as you alluded to earlier in the program, for the Fed to really stay the course and, and keep rates in restrictive territory or even move them higher uh, is, is really the key consideration for corporate mm. credit quality. Amanda, and thank you. Amanda Lynham with us with BlackRock this morning. talk China here. Lisa's all fired up to talk to China. With Greg Villiers, that's the lead part of his note this morning. He's chief policy strategist at AGF Investments. But there's Eric Cantor, Greg Villiers, and you and I know he was absolutely yeah. flattened in Republican politics of a good number of years ago. Has the Republican Party changed at all since Eric Cantor? I mean, to me, McCarthy's in the same place as uh, John Boehner. And there's an Eric Cantor right now trying to help McCarthy, and he can't get anything done. Yeah, I think the party has gotten more strident uh, in many respects in the House, which makes life, as we all know, very difficult for uh, McCarthy. I, I think the other big story is China. And just a, a couple of comments quickly, Tom, on that. Uh, the little progress they made in the last few days was negated overnight with uh, Joe Biden inexplicably uh, ripping into Z. I don't know why he did it. And number two, uh, I think that these stories out on a military base or a spy base or a training base in Cuba by uh, the Chinese really is a serious, serious issue. I agree, because you and I lived it. I have the clearest memories of my youth and the Cuban Missile Crisis. But I would suggest, Greg, there's not missiles involved here. It's going to be X number of soldiers 100 miles from Key West. I get that tension. But can you really equate it to a Cuban Missile Crisis of John Fitzgerald Kennedy? 
Fair point, it's not as serious as 1962, but at the same time, it's going to give fodder to politicians who don't like China in both parties, whether it's Chuck Schumer or uh, Kevin McCarthy. In both parties, China is not popular, and I think this will simply add fuel to the fire uh, to speak out against the Chinese. Greg, you mentioned Joe Biden inexplicably, in your words, uh, going after Xi Jinping. I'll read you the actual comments. He was speaking at a fundraiser last night saying uh, that the Chinese leader had been blindsided by the spy balloon saying he didn't know it was there. That's with the great embarrassment for dictators where they don't know what happened and that was what really keyed off some of the concerns with people calling that irresponsible and saying that really does heighten tensions what do you make of the why behind president biden's comments was this some sort of diplomatic foray or was this another faux pas that's going to be sort of highlighted as kind of emblematic of his presidency well, first of all, Lisa, you got to say it looked to me anyway that the balloon story had been, you know, buried. I think we put that behind us uh, three or four days ago, and Biden resurrected it. So I, I, this could be just part of a a string of gas we've seen recently by Biden. A after one speech last week, he said, "God save the Queen." You know, there's there's things that he says that leave people scratching their heads, and it's it's to be serious for a second. It does plant seeds of doubt among a lot of Democrats uh, who are reluctant to vote for him. Well, just putting aside the election for one second and just doubling down on the theme, do you actually think that this could materially worsen relations with China, that the relationship is already so fragile that a gaffe by the president, just simply mentioning the word dictator, could undermine everything that Tony Blinken accomplished while he was overseas? Well, it doesn't help, does it? It makes things more complicated. And I'm sure you just as you have angry lawyers working for Donald Trump or shaking their head over <coughs> Trump's interview with Brett Baer, you see a lot of uh, people, I'm sure, close to Blinken shaking their heads over why Biden would say something that, uh, to me, reckless. Greg, what do we follow into July? I, I mean, I think for so much of our audience, we're exhausted by this story, this story. We glance at the Post, glance at the Times, glance at Bloomberg politics, etc. But what's the thing to follow into July? Well, we've got today, as you know, we've got uh, Jerome Powell. But I would say throughout the summer, the number one story is Ukraine. Uh, if this war doesn't go well and it, they got off to a fairly slow start, uh, I think it'll lead to a lot of anxiety that the West and the U.S. may lighten up on our aid. We're not at that point yet. I think the, this is still a, a winnable war, but I think there's got to be signs of progress. So to me, that is the story mm -hmm. for the rest of the summer. I want to take the military and its effort in Ukraine, swing it back to the Pacific Ring, Greg Valier. And one of the clear things yep. we see is an expansion of the United States military across the Pacific Rim. It seems to me to endure. It's not only a discussion, it's now being budgeted and planned. Is that how you see it? Yeah, I think so. There's going to be controversy in the House on how much we're going to spend on Ukraine in the budget. And I would say the number two issue for the next two or three months will be budget. And I don't want to sound like the little boy who cried wolf, but I think chances of a government shutdown on October 1 are a little bit above 50-50. So that's going to be a big deal. I think at the end of the day, the defense industry and Ukraine get plenty of money from the U.S. 
We know that just to double down on what you were talking about with respect to Ukraine and that you think that's going to be the key worry. Are you expecting to hear exactly what the progress is, how Ukraine is defending against a Russian offensive that by a number of reports is getting perhaps a bit perhaps more savvy? How much are you looking for intel from the rebuild Ukraine yeah. conference currently ongoing? Well, of course, as we all know, the first casualty of war is the truth. So it's hard to, to, to discern what is true and what isn't. I, I just think it's this is going to be a long slog. I think people were unrealistic, thinking that the Ukrainians would just romp during June. Well, they haven't. But we still have a long way to go this summer. Greg Villiers, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with AGF Investments. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. There is a movie. It is called Northside 777. It is of a Chicago long ago. Jimmy Stewart takes a lens and is fabulous in that movie until halfway through, you realize there's an old lady on her knees at the Wrigley Building taking the movie, stealing the movie from Jimmy Stewart. And, of course, that is the iconic uh, grandmother and mother uh, within called Northside 7-7. This is an extraordinary book. I really don't know what to say. Uh, Ginny Rometty Romedy, as you know, it's the most mispronounced name in corporate <laughs> world. Ginny Romedy uh, with us this morning on a hugely courageous book. And I want to start with the blistering first 50 pages of your childhood. And Baba came to the rescue. Who was Baba? <laughs> My great-grandmother. And you're, and you're right. And uh, you speak of the Wrigley Building because I was raised by really strong women who all suffered great tragedies. And that was my great-grandmother who came here from Belarus, the last person alive from her family, who worked third shift in the Wrigley Building cleaning bathrooms, never spoke a stitch of English, English, and uh, saved every dime in U.S. savings bonds. And one day it would, would allow us to have a car. What was the first day like at Northwestern? There were fancy people from Nutrier, debutantes from Nutrier. Yes, you know and that there area. Were you going and there up? I was. Yes, yeah. there I was. No, I, I, I was there by the grace of God, right? Just uh, lucky enough to get a scholarship. And what I, what I remember is having gone to the store and bought 
one pair of jeans and top ciders to try to fit in. Did That's you use a slide like. rule? I did use a slide yeah, rule. You're so dating nerd. me This now. is like a nerd fest. <laughs> yes, Let's yes. go to the woman from Chicago who wouldn't know a slide rule if it hit her over the well, head. From a slide rule to today, it's actually an appropriate kind of pathway at a time when tech is at the epicenter of how to get from the slide rule to the uh, graphing calculator and, and beyond, right? How much can you see some of the lessons that you learned at the helm of IBM of how to bring a company up to speed with technology that moves more quickly than anyone could imagine. Yeah, this is it's timely because even though the book took me two years to write, Good Power, there's a whole section in it on AI because uh, a decade ago, I spent a, quite a bit of time trying to bring AI into the world to solve really tough problems, and here we are now. And to me, the things I learned, everybody wants to talk about the technology. This is going to be a people and a trust problem. That, that is what I learned from all these, these years in that, you know, with something like AI, I see it as two sides of one coin. And if we don't manage the good and the bad at the same time, we're going to have trouble. When you look back on your legacy at IBM and you think about some of the advancements that perhaps were shrugged off at the outset, whether it was cloud computing or some of the others, what would you do differently? Or how do you understand what to identify as something that holds promise versus the next you know, false hope yeah. that everyone's going to cling to. Yeah. Hey, look, I think this is difficult. It's difficult because actually many of the bets we placed were correct. Some timing was not exactly right on those. But today, everything we did around AI and now it's hybrid cloud mm -hmm. is what the company is really growing from. So the idea when you run a company, and IBM's the oldest tech company, and clearly I had to lead it through its most tumultuous reinvention, is that you've just got to make those decisions for the long term, even if you may not see them play out during your tenure. Joining us on radio and television, good power. I can't say enough about it. It's summer read thin. This is great, but very dense. 230 pages here on a life story that's extraordinary and also the realities of IBM. I'm going to address it. You've been you've had critics like a pinata uh, here on the transformation of I've been moved. I want to get to Gerstner in a minute, but the way you used to read the statement from Sam Palmasano as you looked at the free cash flow on page two of the annual report and you said IBM to the moon. What happened? How well, did Palmasano get this so wrong? Look, I mean, what we had done, we had done very well to a certain point, but then the world changed. The and world changed. There was, there was not just one tech trend. There was cloud. There was data. There was AI, mobility, social media. And that's five trends, so not in one. The, in the meetings, was it? did you blame McKinsey? Did you bring in consultants who screwed this up? Why did you have such an inertial no. force? where you couldn't change faster. Yeah, I think you, what you always have when you're an incumbent in something, you, it is both you're trying to protect, not just protect a past, you've got customers that you've got to serve, yet you've got to move to the future at the same time. And so that really, I said, every one of us had a challenge, and mine was to now prepare a whole new technology portfolio for the future. But I had a double sort of challenge in that I also had to reskill the workforce. Mm -hmm. And so when I began... Well, <clears throat> folks weren't prepared for future skills. It's late in the book. You're phenomenal in this. You go to Brian Moynihan at Bank of America, who's an animal. I mean, I love, you know, Brian, you go, what's the Fed going to do? Baloney. He's a bank animal. He knows the deposit flows in Kansas City. And he talks about hiring for skill. Yeah. Does that mean you only hire engineers? Yeah. Look, this is something that... Um, I, I work passionately on now, this idea to hire for people for their skills, not just their degrees. I came to it having had a mother. I, you know, I was abandoned as a kid, and my mother had no education. So, But I quickly saw 
access and aptitude were not equal, meaning she had aptitude, no access to education. So she got a little bit of education and can get an hourly job, a little more, a little better job to get us off of things like food stamps. Fast forward, I would be searching for people like cyber. They're not in the marketplace in 2012. We'd start to work with community colleges and high schools. And I'd say, why aren't we hiring these people? They can do the job. Well, 100% of our requirements are college degrees. And it would lead me down this path for really now almost two mm -hmm. decades of a movement I think it's essential to democracy in this country that we revisit having found 50% of our jobs were over-credentialed, requiring a degree to start when you didn't need one to start. This idea that where you start shouldn't determine where you end. That's skills first. You join the show at a really important point, and you're an important voice at a time where we talk so much about tech and how much that's a divergent story from the rest of the economy. Do you think that the big tech names that have really become the behemoths are doing a good job managing the technological trends, managing to train people in the appropriate ways, and creating a path for a longer yeah. type of trajectory? Let, let, let me answer that two ways. One is, there's a whole chapter of what I call stewarding good tech, and it isn't just the tech companies. It's now all of us, and as much effort's got to be put on preparing people to see a better future because of this technology. I mean, my biggest learning with trying to roll out AI, particularly with professional people, they don't trust it. They, it, unless they're part of its co-creation and how it's used, won't use mm -hmm. it. So as you go forward now, this is about reskilling not just your current workers, you know, it'll be multiple times in our lifetime. Once and done education is over now. And so that idea that I think that side of the coin about preparing the workforce right. is totally not paid attention to right now. And to me, that is the biggest thing. And second is, is really getting people to trust the technology. Um, you know, I had a lot of experience with a big company with a big brand. And when you introduce AI, there's very little tolerance for it to be wrong when you're a big company. A startup, no problem. But when you start using right. it for health, financial services, you're in a whole different ballgame with how people react to it. So that issue of trust mm -hmm. and preparing people are what I think is not being acted on enough. I'm out of time, but I got to squeeze this in. I got 14 more questions. I got time for one question. What was the best practice of Lou Gerstner? Uh my, you know, I, you know, I have immense respect for Lou, and to this day, is a very good friend of mine. I think he was a brilliant both strategist and execution leader, both sides of the coin. He got his hands dirty, as you say. Absolutely, and to this, this day, is, this is like gospel to me. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. You and, and I, I share that. I nothing on the show. Everybody puts it together for me. I just show up. No, no, I, we share that admiration. He is able to simplify the complex in an amazing way. This is a great book, Good Power, Leading Positive Change in Our Lives, Work, and World. The first 50 pages is blistering. There's no other way to put it. Jenny, think, I'm not going to pronounce your last name. I That's all right. Rometti. Rometti. Right. There you go. Got Nailed it. it. Nailed 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 it. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Now stay tuned for today's edition of Bloomberg Daybreak. It's your daily news podcast delivering today's top stories to your podcast feed by 6 a.m. Eastern. It's all the news you need in just 15 minutes. The Bloomberg Daybreak Podcast. It starts right now. From the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios, this is Bloomberg Daybreak for Wednesday, June 21st. Coming up today. A hopeful sound. Noises are detected in the search for the undersea vessel near the Titanic. New tensions emerge with China after President Biden refers to Xi Jinping as a dictator. Fed Chair Jay Powell delivers his first day of congressional testimony this morning. And FedEx does not deliver for investors with its latest earnings. President Biden prepares for his state visit with India's Prime Minister. Plus, New York State is banning employers' use of non-compete agreements. I'm Michael Barr. More ahead. I'm John Stanchel in sports. Garrett Cole pitched the Yankees to a much-needed win over Seattle. The Mets and Justin Verlander lost in Houston. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak, the business news you need to start your day in just one 15-minute podcast. Each morning on Apple, Spotify, the Bloomberg Business app, and everywhere you get your podcasts. Good morning, I'm Nathan Hager. And I'm Karen Moscow. Here are the stories we're following today. We want to update you first on the missing submersible near the wreckage of the Titanic and what may be a hopeful sign. The Coast Guard says underwater sounds have been detected. Now search teams are being redirected to find out where those sounds came from. Coast Guard Rear Admiral John Mauger says they're using planes, remotely operated vehicles and underwater robots to find the five people on board the Titan. It's a really complex case. Uh, they're, you know, active uh, uh, debris field down uh, on the bottom of the ocean uh, and a lot of complexity working at that depth. Rear Admiral John Mauger tells ABC News it's a race against time. The Titan is designed to carry up to 96 hours of oxygen. At this rate, the ship may have less than 24 hours of air left. Well, another major story that we're following this morning, Nathan, involves the fallout from the plea deal for Hunter Biden. The deal may help avoid a messy public trial and keep President Biden's son out of jail. But the agreement also provides fodder for the president's political opponents. Bloomberg's Amy Morris reports from our 99.1 newsroom in Washington. Hunter Biden's legal troubles haven't stopped the president from supporting him. I'm very proud of my son. Republicans are outraged with the deal, vowing to continue their probes into the Biden family. Congressman James Comer is chair of the House Oversight Committee. This has absolutely nothing to do with our investigation of, of Joe Biden, and we're going to continue to move forward with that. The Congressman Jamie Raskin, the top Democrat on that committee, says if there is a double standard, it's with the Trump family, not Biden. They should check out what happened with Jared Kushner. He registered to create a new corporation which promptly received $2 billion from the Saudi government. A judge still has to approve the plea deal, even as the lead prosecutor says the investigation is ongoing. In Washington, I'm Amy Morris, Bloomberg Daybreak. Thank you, Amy. While the rhetoric heats up between the parties over Hunter Biden, tensions between the U.S. and China may be rising again. China says President Biden made a, quote, public political provocation by referring to his counterpart Xi Jinping as a dictator. Biden told a California fundraiser that the Chinese leader had been embarrassed by an alleged spy balloon because he didn't know it was there. The president says, quote, that's the great embarrassment for dictators when they didn't know what happened. Well, turning to the markets now, Nathan, all eyes today and tomorrow are focused on Washington. That's where Fed Chairman Jake Powell gives his semi-annual report to Congress. We get a preview from Bloomberg's Michael McKee. 
In the House today, the Fed chairman will have the opportunity to clarify what some feel was a confusing message on the path for interest rates. What would lead central bankers to raise rates again? Something their own forecasts suggest will happen. Does inflation have to rise? Does unemployment? Or does it just have to remain flat? What is the ultimate end rate, and how soon after that might they begin the rate cuts they foresee for 2024? There will also be questions about the impact of March's bank failures and on possible regulatory changes for the industry. Tomorrow, Powell comes back to testify before the Senate. Michael McKee, Bloomberg Daybreak. Okay, Mike, as investors await possible clues on the future of rates, Brown Brothers Harriman, head of currency strategy Win Thin, thinks the Fed is far from done. When all its dust uh, settles, um, I think the Fed is going to go higher for longer. The market still doesn't quite believe the Fed. Uh, they've got one hike priced in, but the Fed signaled there'll be two. And I sense that some, there are a lot of analysts that don't think the Fed uh, will hike again. That is, this isn't just a pause. This is the end. I, I wholeheartedly disagree. Brown Brothers Harriman's win thin expects a stronger dollar the rest of the year. Well, rates are also in focus in Europe this morning, Nathan, after a hot inflation reading over in the U.K. And we get the latest with Bloomberg's Ewan Potts in London. Good morning, Ewan. Good morning, Karen Nathan. It's hot in London again today, but while the weather is nice, a fourth inflation reading higher than estimates is not so welcome. Consumer prices rose 8.7% in the year to May, defying forecasts for a slowdown in price gains. Core inflation unexpectedly rose on last month. It's now at a 31-year high. It's all a headache for the Bank of England as they weigh their next move in tomorrow's policy meeting. Traders are ramping up bets the bank will need to administer stronger medicine in their fight against rampant inflation. In London, I'm Ewan Potts, Bloomberg Daybreak. All right, Ewan, thank you. Back here in the U.S., we're watching shares of FedEx in early trading. They're down about 3% after the company gave a 2024 profit outlook that came in below analyst estimates. And we get the story from Bloomberg's Charlie Pellet. A drop in package demand offsets CEO Raj Subramanian's $4 billion cost-cutting plan. The company has sought to reduce expenses as the industry deals with a decline in package volume following two years of surging demand fueled by pandemic-driven online shopping. In a separate statement, FedEx said CFO Michael Lenz will retire effective July 31st. In New York, Charlie Pellet, Bloomberg Daybreak. All right, Charlie, thanks. And J.P. Morgan Chase is making a fresh round of layoffs in Asia. Bloomberg News has learned the bank is cutting about 20 investment banking jobs as deal flows remain muted. Sources say the reductions impact mostly junior staff and associates and analyst levels in sectors including consumer, healthcare, and private capital markets. Time now to take a look at some of the other stories making news in New York and around the world. And for that, we are joined by Bloomberg's Michael Barr. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, Nathan. New York is joining other states on banning employee non-compete agreements. The bill coincides with Federal Trade Commission and National Labor Relations Board actions to fight non-competes. The measure now heads to Governor Kathy Ockel's desk after the state assembly passed it yesterday. Employers' use of non-compete contracts, which restrict workers from going to work for a competitor, cover an estimated one-fifth of the U.S. workforce. The FDNY confirmed what many suspected. A lithium-ion battery was the cause of Tuesday's fire that killed four people in Manhattan. The blaze started in an e-bike shop on the Lower East Side. The shop is downstairs from their apartments in the six-story building. New York City Fire Commissioner Laura Kavanaugh. 
this exact scenario where there are is an e-bike store on the first floor and residences above and the volume of fire created by these lithium-ion batteries is incredibly deadly. The FDNY says the shop was inspected in August of last year and summonses were issued. A former NYPD officer is among a group of people convicted of working for China. More from Bloomberg's Dan Schwartzman. Three people, including a retired New York City police sergeant, have been convicted of acting as agents of the People's Republic of China. Prosecutors showed that the three carried out illegal law enforcement operations in the U.S., including trying to pressure dissidents to return to China. The three were in a group of eight originally charged back in October of 2020 of participating in Operation Fox Hunt, which a Chinese government says was a legitimate operation to track down fugitives. In New York, I'm Dan Schwartzman, Bloomberg Daybreak. President Joe Biden is hosting Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi for a state visit this week. Biden hopes to improve his relationship with the leader of a nation of 1.4 billion that the U.S. administration sees as a pivotal force in Asia for decades to come. Dozens of congressional members are urging President Biden to talk to Modi about human rights concerns. Today, Modi is highlighting inner tranquility. His public schedule for the day opens with a group yoga session on the United Nations North Lawn. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in over 120 countries. I'm Michael Barr. This is Bloomberg Nathan. Thank you, Michael. Time now for the Bloomberg Sports Update, and for that, here's John Stashauer. All right, Nathan, Yankees back home after the rough weekend in Boston, and thankfully, Garrett Cole was on the mound. Dominant in seven of the third innings, allowed one run, only four hits, struck out eight. Clay Holmes got the last five outs, a much-needed Yankee win, 3-1 over Seattle. They beat the Mariners. George Kirby, the Rye native who had shut them out in a recent game in Seattle, Billy McKinney. Hit a two-run homer off Kirby in the second inning. Before the game, Yankee GM Brian Cashman met the media to discuss the Yanks' recent struggles. Got a really good team when we're flying high and playing the way we're capable of. Right now, we haven't been doing that, and so it looks bad, it feels bad, it tastes bad, um, and no one likes losing. So, uh, so I understand why the fans are upset and, and not happy with how it's playing out. Cashman said he still has belief in rookie shortstop Anthony Volpe, who's among many Yankees who have been struggling. Mets in Houston, Justin Verlander faced his former team, and Alex Bregman hit a two-run homer off him. The Astros won 4-2. to two. The Mets had only four hits. Didn't have a base runner off Framber Valdez until the sixth inning. They didn't score until the eighth. Freeway Series Dodgers shut out the Angels 2-0 behind Clayton Kershaw. The Cincinnati Reds last season lost 100 games. They just won their 10th game in a row. And the Giants, a 500 team last year, won their ninth straight. The ex-Met Marcus Stroman has the lowest ERA in the National League. He pitched the Cubs to a shutout win over Pittsburgh. And the ex-Yankee Aaron Hicks, who's still getting paid by the Yanks, they released him with a 188 batting average. He had a homer, four RBIs in Baltimore's win at Tampa Bay. Hicks with the Orioles is batting 340. John Stashauer, Bloomberg Sports. From coast to coast, from New York to San Francisco, Boston to Washington, D.C., nationwide on Sirius XM, the Bloomberg Business app, and Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak. 
Good morning. I'm Nathan Hager. Well, a flurry of legal news came out of Washington yesterday morning. First, we learned the trial date for former President Donald Trump in the classified documents case. A federal judge set that for mid-August. It was also announced that the current president's son, Hunter Biden, is facing tax and gun charges and reached a plea deal in that case. Bloomberg's Joe Matthew spoke with former White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney on Bloomberg Sound On to break down the political fallout for the current and former presidents. Let's hear part of that conversation. Anything short of a a felony indictment of Hunter Biden is going to be interpreted by some folks as two-tier. I think it remains to be seen as to to what what, what are the facts? What what was the circumstance behind Hunter Biden's tax issues? Um, Now that the um, uh, Chairman Comer has made a really good point, which is now that we are either, you know, at the end or moving speedily to the end of the investigation of Hunter Biden, then the Department of Justice no longer has an excuse not to share information with Congress. So as between both the public hearing on the plea deal and the congressional investigation, my guess is we'll see a lot more about Hunter Biden than we know right now. And only then will you be able to sort of have an an informed opinion as to two different tiers of justice in this country. Mm -hmm. Does this quiet the voices of concern who thought Hunter Biden was never going to be acknowledged here in Washington, that this would never actually become a case? Yeah, a a little bit. In fact, I had had some conversations uh, with some of my friends, uh, my Republican friends who were complaining about, well, they're charging Trump, but they're not charging Hunter. And then, you know, say, well, okay, if they charge Hunter, are you then okay with them charging Trump? And they get very quiet very quickly. So, um, again, whether or not it's a serious charge, I guess we don't know yet until we see the facts in the file. Mick, the idea of an August 14 trial date all the, all the while, and that might <laughs> frankly be a bigger story that's been kind of overshadowed by the Hunter headline. Do you think a trial actually begins in August? I know you're not supposed to make, you know, absolute predictions when you're dealing with politics, and there's a lot of politics <laughs> here. here. But I'd be willing to bet my house there's no trial on August 14th. Um, keep in mind, the right to a speedy trial, which does exist under, under our Constitution, is possessed by the accused, not by the government. Um, so, you know, if Donald Trump wants to slow things down, there's going to be plenty of opportunities to do so. You made a good point about how hard it's going to be to pick a jury. I, I disagree with your um, with the reporter, uh, respectfully, I, I think it's going to yeah. be very, very difficult to pick a jury here because everybody's going to have an opinion about it. And Donald Trump is going to be looking for one juror who's willing to say, you know, I don't care what he did. I'm not convicting him because he only has to get one person to hold out. And the government knows that. So that's going to take a long time. The government may try to recuse the judge. That may take a long time. There's going to be fights over evidence. That may take a long time. So if I'm a betting man and I am, I'm, um, I'm not betting him on this. <laughs> and I am, says Mick Mulvaney. That said, does the trial begin before the presidential election? Or is that really what we're talking about here? Anything to delay it past the election? I talked to a lot of my friends who were in the federal prosecuting business, a lot of folks who used to do white-collar uh, criminal defense. To a man and a woman, they all thought this trial would take place after the election. I think we're all surprised by this announcement, at least, of this early date. And whether or not that changes the calculus, you know, I'd have to talk to folks who've done this for 20, 30 years. Uh, I'm not sure how Donald Trump delays it for a year and, you know, four months or whatever. But I still think it's a better chance than not that it comes after the election. But, again, this is throwing me a curveball along with everybody else saying it's August 14th day. I don't know if you saw Donald Trump and Brett Baer on Fox News. There were some pretty remarkable moments, and it's been suggested that some of this could be entered as evidence in the trial, particularly as he discusses <laughs> moving the boxes around and what was in the boxes. Here's a moment that you might have missed. Why not just hand them over then? Because I had boxes I want to go 
through the boxes and get all my personal things out. I don't want to hand that over to Nara yet. And I was very busy, as you've sort of seen. Yeah, but I've according very, to the indictment, busy. you then tell this aide to move to other locations after telling your lawyers to say you'd fully complied with the subpoena when you hadn't. But before I send boxes over, I have to take all of my things out. Did the former president do damage to himself? <laughs> yes. Uh, I was watching it. I was actually texting a little bit with Brett Bear. You know, the interview wasn't live. All I could think of is now the public sort of gets a chance to see why so many of Donald Trump lawyers quit, because he made things much, much worse for himself. There's one thing that was it wasn't in the segment you just picked up, but it was right about the same time where he said Brett asked him about the papers that he held up on the audio tape. And Trump mm-hmm. said there was nothing there. There was nothing there. It was just it was newspaper clippings and stuff. News, I was yeah. pretending like it was famous or classified, but it's not. In order to make that defense, he has to testify. Um, and I can guarantee you that Donald Trump is not testifying in this case. Um, so that, that is going to be used against him. Uh, most of, a lot of that video will be used against him. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Today, your morning brief on the stories making news from Wall Street to Washington and beyond. Look for us on your podcast feed at 6 a.m. Eastern each morning on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You can also listen live each morning starting at 5 a.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg 1130 in New York, Bloomberg 991 in Washington, Bloomberg 1061 in Boston, and Bloomberg 960 in San Francisco. Our flagship New York station is also available on your Amazon Alexa devices. Just say Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Plus, listen coast to coast on the Bloomberg Business app, Sirius XM Channel 119, the iHeartRadio app, and on Bloomberg.com. I'm Nathan Hager. And I'm Karen Moscow. Join us again tomorrow morning for all the news you need to start your day right here on Bloomberg Daybreak. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.